For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Today's sponsor is Ground News. Now, if there's one thing that we can all agree on, it's that the media landscape is fundamentally broken. Both social media and the press are incentivized to exaggerate our differences and amplify division. A lot of people ask me where they should go for news that they can trust, and I don't usually have a good answer for that. However, Ground News has taken a totally different approach in improving the broken media ecosystem. They're a news comparison platform, giving you the ability to compare how sources with different political biases are covering a certain story, so you can easily see if it's being spun to fit a political narrative. You can click on any article and see how balanced the coverage is. The blind spot feature allows you to see stories that are exclusively being covered by either the left or the right. This allows you to identify news that you may otherwise miss in your own bubble. Ground News is an apolitical platform. It's a place for moderates, conservatives, liberals, and the politically homeless. Try it for yourself today by downloading the free Ground News app on the App Store or Google Play Store. Just go on the store and search for Ground News. Highly recommend it. What's up, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls around the world? I would like to welcome you back to the Real Talk with Zuby podcast. Now, on today's episode, we've got on a really interesting guy. This is Scott Santons. He is a writer as well as an advocate for universal basic income, a.k.a. UBI. Uh, it's something we haven't talked about a lot on the show, so there's no better man to do it. Welcome to the show, Scott. How are you doing? Thanks, Zuby. Thanks for having me on. No doubt, man. Happy to have you here. Um, so I've done a little brief intro there, but for people who are not familiar with you and your work, uh, tell them a little bit about who you are and what you do. Yeah, so I got into this idea of a uh, unconditional basic income is how I refer to it uh, back in 2013. And uh, back then, this was like prior to like kind of the rise of the automation discussion. And it was through this um, uh, an article or a conversation at the front page of Reddit. And it was just about like how quickly technology is advancing and how like no one's really talking about it or like the you know ramifications of that down the road. So that was just really fascinating to me, everything that people were talking about. And um, uh, it was there was a suggestion that that uh, that I that people read the book called Mana by Marshall Brain. And so I read that book too. And it's just interesting. This book kind of uh, looked at like the future of technology and how like there's like a path that we're going down towards like you know what I describe more dystopian path. And there's a path that we could make that's more, you know, like Star Trek, more utopian. And it's like, well, you know, given that kind of realistic even take, um, I'd much prefer that we take the better path, you know, like let's make technology work for all of us. Mm -hmm. And so that got me looking into basic income because the writer suggested that was the way to get onto that path. And so I was just fascinated looking at basic income and learning about, you know, its history, um, how long it's been around, how like. We actually got kind of close to a basic uh, income guarantee back under Nixon. 
Like, I didn't know that. I didn't know, like, we had experimented with it back in the 70s. I didn't realize that, you know, Canada had experimented with it. And, um, you know, just learning more about the evidence, it just seemed to paint a clear picture of, like, this is, like, not only something that we should do because of, like, robots coming, uh, but because it's actually just a plain good, good idea based on, like, the evidence. And, um, and, like, even the philosophy behind it was interesting, uh, like, the justifications for it. Um, even from like the left and the right, the fact is kind of this bipartisan idea. And also I learned more about the, uh, just the way the existing like conditional welfare system works mm -hmm. and learning more about like those details instead of basically like assuming the way things worked, um, really like hit home that this is something that we really need to do like immediately and not just something like down the road. So that's what got me into it. And uh, I actually crowdfunded my own basic income, uh, mm -hmm. starting in 2016. Uh, I've lived with, you know, this basic income floor that, uh, you know, enables me to do this work that I feel is valuable. So I've even, you know, learned more things about it by having it like this economic security. Gotcha. Okay, cool. There's a lot of stuff to get into there. Um, I'm curious about the the sort of journey here. So you mentioned you saw that there are two pathways that you think we could kind of be going down. One of them you described as dystopian the other one, you know, more positive or more utopian. And I guess that's based on advancements in technology and automation, perhaps in particular. So what are those two different roads as you see them? Yeah, it's interesting, too, how uh, Stephen Hawking basically described it as the same way where, you know, we've got all this technology and it's interesting, like we are we're twice as productive as we were in the 1970s. And based on like that rise in productivity, like Sorry, what's, think, what's that, what's that measured in out of curiosity? Uh, it's measured in, uh, you know, GDP, um, uh, like per hours worked. And okay. so, you know, we're doing more with less over time. And so you'd think that we can either be working half as much and consuming, just as much as we were in the 70s, or we could be consuming twice as much and working just as much as we did in the 70s, or some, you know, mix thereof. Mm -hmm. But that's not the way that it worked out. The way that it worked out is all this productivity growth went to like the top 1% and was not shared, you know, with the rest of the country. And this is true you know, country after country, not just in the US. So the question is, as we grow more productive, who benefits from that? Mm -hmm. And UBI is a way of directly basically providing a dividend, like a productivity dividend to everyone in a country um, instead of letting that growth um, flow only to the top like it has been. Okay. Uh, when you say the growth is flowing only to the top, I mean, I know, of course, there are disparities and there's a, obviously there's inequalities in absolutely everything, right? Um, but how, how accurate is that? I mean, I guess it depends on how far back we're going, right? Because certainly the sort of base level of living for people, not just in the USA, all, all over the world has come up very, very significantly over the past few decades. Um, I guess by some measures, certainly in many countries, the gap between say the top 0.1% or 1%, you know, and the person at the bottom has, has grown, but in terms of less people i mean we live in a time where less people than ever before are living in poverty well at least the, the the last year may have changed that very slightly uh temporarily but i think before this just you know factually 
the average person alive, whether in their US, USA, UK, uh, China, you know, Africa, wherever, they're generally in a better position than they were a couple decades ago. So what's the, I just want to be clear sure. on, on what is meant by that. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, between countries, inequality has actually been decreasing. And okay. you're correct. Like as we measure inequality and poverty, that's been like from a global perspective, um, been getting better. Mm. Um, within countries is a different picture where inequality has been increasing. And in fact, in the U.S., uh, despite poverty rising because inequality has risen, then actually extreme poverty has been rising in the U.S. So that's just kind of a a result of like this increased inequality. Um, okay. in between which, t what time frame are we talking here? Oh, decades. It's really, uh, the, you've really seen a lot of this post seventies. So um, like they call it the great decoupling is one way of looking at this, which is prior to 1974, um, incomes actually rose with productivity. Mm -hmm. So as workers were more productive, they got a higher income. Yeah. And then starting around 1974, then that decoupled and basically flattened, adjusted for inflation, whereas mm -hmm. productivity continued to rise. And so there was actually a really interesting study that just came out um, a matter of months ago, uh, back in uh, like later 2020. And this looked at, okay, so if inequality had not risen in the U.S., what would people be earning right now in the U.S.? And they found that Basically, um, right now, we'd be getting $2.5 trillion more per year for the bottom 90%. And that if someone who'd been earning, say, $30,000 in 1974, they'd be earning like $60,000. Someone who was earning $50,000 would be earning $100,000. And that's adjusted for inflation, too. So over time, there's $50 trillion worth that flowed to the top 1% that mm -hmm. would have otherwise flowed to the bottom 90%. So that's okay. like kind of gives you just a picture of just to what degree inequality has essentially robbed most of the country from the benefits of rising productivity. Okay. Um, so we, we, we're probably going to have a, a split on this one, but in your mind, because I want to understand your own, your own perspective here, because I'm someone who's, I have very, very little concern about inequality. I think it's totally natural. Um, I have concerns about poverty. However, um, I think that you know, there's people out there who are earning 10,000, 10, I don't know, probably 100,000 times as much money as I earn. Um, but to me, that's not an issue, right? It's uh, if there are people who are in poverty and, you know, homelessness obviously is an issue if people can't afford food, if people can't afford, you know, general living, then that's one thing. But I've always been a, a little bit puzzled and confused by when people focus all the time on the gap and the inequality rather than poverty itself, if you see what I mean. Sure. So, yeah, so what what's your biggest concern around the inequality aspect? Yeah, so there's a there's a couple of things um, or a few different things that's uh, important about inequality. And so, um, you know, from like an economic sense, and this is like stuff um, that's out there from the IMF, from the World Bank, um, you know, this isn't like some extreme position. But you see that there's basically like a sweet spot for inequality where, um, you know, as measured by the the Gini index, G-I-N-I is how it's referred to, um, where you go from like maximum inequality and maximum equality. There's like a sweet spot where that's where like the most economic growth happens. So more inequality than that, you're actually going to be hurting the amount of economic growth that happens. And so in the U.S., we're at 
too high of inequality for that, like because we've let inequality grow. And again, mm -hmm. so I'm not saying that we shouldn't be unequal. It's just that had we not let inequality increase from what already existed back in the 70s, then we actually, as a country, would have created more wealth even beyond what we did. So we're actually kind of holding ourselves back by this high inequality. Okay. And and right. so that's just like from an economic perspective, mm -hmm. but also there's 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 physical effects. So there's social uh, social effects from high inequality, and so you see that um, like as one example, um, when it comes to like gun violence, that's associated pretty closely with the amount of inequality in the society, and when it comes to like other kinds of um, you know violence and crime, then it's not affected by inequality. Say it's more like by poverty. Mm -hmm. So there's like crime that's poverty related and crime that's inequality related. So again, you want to not have too much inequality, or else you're going to have those problems that you wouldn't otherwise be having to the degree that you're having them in a high inequality situation. Mm -hmm. So there's a lot of like you know health reasons why it's good to reduce inequality and not just say purely economic reasons. And then there's also political reasons. So we know that when inequality gets to be to such degrees it is right now, then you've got, say, billionaires who can influence politics and elections in like major ways like mm -hmm. the Koch brothers have. And um, if you want to avoid those, like, first of all, you need to have, you know, better systems in place for democracy that kind of avoid that kind of thing. Um, but also it's just kind of a natural outcome of when inequality has risen to such a degree that you're creating extremely powerful people that just have more influence. Mm. But I, oh, so, okay. So this is a, I think this is a philosophical aspect here because how can that be dealt with in a way that is ethical? I've never heard a solution for this inequality, uh, problem per se, that to me is not highly unethical. Um, you know, of course, you've got people who are full on eat the rich, tax the rich, you know, whatever, you know, billionaires shouldn't exist and, and so on and so forth, which, you know, I'm very much in the free market capitalist mindset and always have been. And I don't, I have a big, I have big major ethical issues when it comes to this whole idea of, okay, let's just essentially let's jack the rich and redistribute their wealth amongst other sure. people. Like I think most people who are more conservative leaning, libertarian leaning, certainly just have a, a clear ethical issue with that whole notion of um, redistribution by force, essentially. Um, so is there, is, is that the only way in various forms that that's sort of feasible or is there, uh, is there another way? Well, so first of all, I guess I would say that that um, redistribution is not the only way of reducing inequality. Like mm -hmm. um, I would say pre-distribution is also another way of reducing inequality. So, you know, like if you look at the the that that productivity divide that happened in the, the mid 70s, mm -hmm. um, you know, one way of fixing that is to go back and say, oh, well, that was this happened and then now it's reversed that. But of course, another way is just to prevent that from having happened in the first place. And then okay. you wouldn't have to redistribute what was going on. And so I think one way of, of pointing at that particular avenue is to look at Alaska. 
Mm-hmm. So I, I I refer to what Alaska is doing as pre-distribution. They're okay. saying, you know, the oil companies come in and they're like, you know, we would like to drill on your land. And Alaska says, well, we own this land and you're welcome to drill on it, but we want our share. And so the oil companies pay Alaska mm-hmm. to actually the rights to drill in Alaska. And then that money is put into a large sovereign wealth fund called the Alaska Permanent Fund. Mm-hmm. And then that distributes dividends every year to everyone in Alaska. So because of that, you actually see you know reduced inequality in Alaska because everyone is receiving around $1,000 to $2,000 per year. Mm-hmm. And that's per person too. So you yeah. know, $2,000, household of five, you know, two adults, three kids, then you're looking at $10,000. And that's seen as their dividend, you know, and, mm. and even, you know, this is conservative Alaska. So they're looking at this and they're saying, okay, this money should go to us and we should actually go around government because government shouldn't be allowed to decide where this money goes. Cause we can't trust government with utilizing, you know, resources in the most efficient, like best way for us. We know that we ourselves can make the decisions. So let's go around government and make sure that it goes directly to us. Mm-hmm. So that's pre-distribution and it's a dividend. And I think it's important to see that too, because you know, it's a very capitalistic kind of sense. It's saying that, you know, like this is my backyard. Like imagine yeah. if there was like gold in your backyard, mm-hmm. you know, it's not like socialism or something for you to say, look, I'm not going to work and do like the mining myself to dig up the gold, but like, you're welcome to do it, but I want my share. Mm-hmm. And so when it comes to like the technology and, and economy as a whole, like this is stuff that's been we've been developing over decades and in centuries even that this is the growth of human knowledge that this is even you know tax funded um basic research and development that has gone on to a lot of this stuff mm-hmm. and it should be seen as like something that we should receive as a dividend and that's a very capitalistic kind of takeaway is yeah. to say that you know let's make sure we get a dividend Gotcha. Okay. So in Alaska, of course, that's based on the fact that they have um, oil reserves. I, I know, and I grew up in the, I grew up in Saudi Arabia. So living in mm. the Middle East, of course, right there. I lived there for a are... while too. Oh, okay. Whereabouts? In a Riyadh. Oh, interesting. Okay, cool. That's interesting. Yeah. So of course, in some of the Gulf states based on, you know, oil reserves and natural gas, there are, are things are just done, done differently there, even in terms of there being essentially virtually no taxation, et cetera. So it's kind of a, yeah, I don't know. It's a, it's a weird sort of hybrid model between what I think people, most people in the West would consider like elements of all across the political spectrum, right? It's a sort of like this very conservative country in one sense, but then you could say in terms of the policies and what's uh, provided in terms of public services in some ways is actually a lot more progressive, certainly, than the USA or even in the UK in some ways. So it's like, it's really interesting hybrid. Um, but of course, you know, the main thing you're 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 really big on in general is UBI. So for someone who is listening to this who's not familiar with the concept just in general, can you just explain what UBI is and just kind of the basics of it? Sure. I would describe UBI as being um, society investing in itself with an amount of money that is unconditional, universal, regularly provided 
uh, to the individuals. So those are like the important elements involved. Unconditional meaning that there's no work requirement attached. There's no nothing you have to do. There's nothing, no, a limit you can spend it on. Uh, universal, it goes to rich uh, and poor alike. There's no income tests. And it's regularly provided. So this needs to be, you know, once a month, once a week, once every two weeks, you know, once a year, that kind of thing. And not just like a one-time thing or something that you don't know when you're going to get. And also it's individual uh, to the individual. So like if it goes to a household, it goes to, you know, if it goes to a two-person household, it goes to both members of the household individually mm -hmm. and not to say like the head of the household to provide to the rest of the household. Gotcha. And those are all like important elements and why, um, you know, those are important or it's its own like interesting discussion too. Okay. Um, and so you, obviously you're super passionate about it. Um, why, why is this an idea that number one, why, do, number one, why do we need it? Um, and then number two, how would this be funded? So of course people are going to be in their head right now, if they're not familiar, they're going to be thinking, okay, well, where, where's that money coming from? So, uh, number one, can you explain the, the need? Sure. Yeah. And I, I guess the, the answer to that question too, even comes from how we got to be talking in the first place, which is yeah. the tweet that you put out. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. That, uh, yeah. So your tweet I'm glad, basically I'm glad, said, I'm glad we're talking now because I, I like yeah. it. I'm, I'm, I'm really glad you accepted to do this podcast because <laughs> Twitter is the worst platform for anything requiring a degree of nuance, which is anything <laughs> important. So, you know, as people know, anyone who follows me on Twitter, I like to I like to spark conversations and I like to put little thoughts out there. And then if there's like quite a few guests I've had on this podcast actually have kind of come from those things where it's like, you know what, let's actually just have a conversation rather than like spitting yeah. fire, spinning, spinning hot fire back and forth at each other and, you know, trying to score these points. Cause actually I find it's funny with this podcast. I have so many people who are like, yeah, like, you know, get debate this person or get up. I'm like, you know what? Most people, virtually anybody <laughs> we're actually once you get away from the realm of twitter and you talk to someone like a normal human being you'll probably find actually like you agree with them on a whole bunch of stuff and where the diversions yeah. are tend to be a little bit more like philosophical or worldview or whatever right it's 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 rarely the case that okay like this person is just like a horrible person and this person's like a great person and so like they're clashing on this which is kind of how people try to boil things down on social media um <laughs> which i kind of saw happening and i was like you know what uh if you want to come on the show, like, let's talk because we haven't spoken about this. So, so, so firstly, I appreciate you and I respect you actually coming on because I have had people be like, okay, I'll do it. And then they, and then they go radio silent and they never do it <laughs> and whatever. So, and I've had even had people be like, yeah, you know, you should get more people who have got more kind of like progressive views on or what I'm like, dude, I've, I've reached out to people, but like <laughs> they, they, they'll be like, no, I won't do it. Or they'll say they will. And then they never will, et cetera. So it's an interesting conversation, but yeah, carry on. Yeah. Yeah. And also to your credit too, I mean, the reverse has been true for me when, mm. you know, someone says like, Oh, let's come on my show and we'll talk about it. And then, you know, it doesn't end up happening. So, you know, it's great that you actually followed through and that now we're here you know, that's, that's, that's awesome. Yeah. Um, so yeah, it, it goes back to that Twitter, uh, that the, the tweet that you had out and I don't know if you want to just describe what you said. Yeah, or I sure. Just, yeah. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so I, I said I said that after this past year. So I said something. I can't remember the exact wording. I said something along the lines of, "I've always thought that UBI is a bad idea, but after this past year, I think yeah. it's an even worse idea." And then right, you said, right, right. "Like 
you, yeah, you basically said uh, in, in less kind words that it was the worst take of the year. So, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. And so w- when I say that too, it wasn't only, um, you know, talking about you, it's, it's a take that I've heard from other people too. And I think like that particular take is like really the wrong take to take from the year that we just went through. Okay, go ahead. Um, explain. Yeah. So before, uh, before the pandemic even hit, like, again, part of the reason I feel so strong about UBI is because of, of learning about like the details of the way, like the actual system currently works. And like before the pandemic even hit, like as one example, unemployment insurance, uh, as far as reaching the amount of people who are unemployed. So 28% of the unemployed were receiving unemployment income. And that was before the pandemic. So that's already like 20% that's leaving out the overwhelming majority of the unemployed. Mm-hmm. And so then the pandemic hits. And so, you know, Congress is all like, you know, what are we going to do? What are we going to do? And the unemployment system is actually, it varies by state. You know, this is basically like over, you know, 53 mm-hmm. departments that are all handling this this thing. And so, you know, some states are far worse than others. As an example, too, like Florida before the pandemic even hit, they were so bad. And they designed it that way, too, because they want people to not file for employment. Mm. And they want to, you know, essentially punish people into getting back to work. And so that rate was 12%. So 12% of the unemployed in Florida prior to the pandemic were receiving unemployment income. Okay. And just to be clear, would 100% of them be entitled to it in theory? Well, so in theory, I think we would say that if you're unemployed, then you should be receiving income that enables you to survive and to get the next job. And now there are also, you know, um, there are, say, expiration dates that are fairly common. So you Mm -hmm. say that, okay, well, let's make sure that someone can receive unemployment income for, you know, a year or something. Mm -hmm. And then after that, then it it expires and they they find a job before that ends. Mm -hmm. But again, there's variety within that span. So like, again, Florida was like one of the the shortest amounts of time before kicking people off, which is why that rate was so low. Okay. And of course, they also designed their websites to be like so difficult that you couldn't really apply well and people got fed up with it and just like didn't apply. Yeah. So when the pandemic hit, then all of a sudden you had like tens of millions of people suddenly unemployed and you had you know these systems that just were not built for it. And like to their credit, I think it worked out well that did that that they did this flat income boost here in the U.S. Um, that went it was like a federal boost nationwide, six hundred dollars mm-hmm. per week, just to cover everybody. And it's like we had to get this done quickly. Let's mm-hmm. just do this. So to their credit, I think that that worked out you know well, worked out better than it could have. But yeah. so pandemic hits and people are thrown to the system that they've, you know, so many people never thought that they would need to file for unemployment. So mm-hmm. many people thought that they would never need, um, you know, SNAP benefits, food stamps, yeah. um, or, you know, to go to a food bank, but suddenly yeah. so many people did. Mm-hmm. And then that's when they learned like these kind of details that they didn't know before. Mm-hmm. And so those details mean that, okay, you had people calling up in order, you know, to, to qualify for benefits and, you know, they just had to keep calling over and over and over and over and over again for like, you know, hours at a time every day for weeks and either giving up or, you know, finally getting through. So then you had people finally getting through and then they said, okay, well, you're qualified, your benefits will start. And then people waited months and months and months to actually receive, you know, their first checks. Mm-hmm. 
And, you know, to this day, like we're over a year now out since March hit and so many people lost their jobs and people are still waiting. You know, some people are still waiting for their unemployment who have said that they've been approved. Mm -hmm. And you had people, you know, standing in lines at at food banks that were miles long, just crazy the amount of people that needed food assistance. Mm -hmm. And was that because there weren't food like in the stores? Um, you know, no, there was plenty of food in grocery stores, but mm-hmm. people didn't have the money to actually buy that food. So then they had to go to the food banks and there was so much demand for that, that they couldn't possibly handle it. Mm-hmm. And then you saw besides all these problems where like people falling through the existing system and not getting the assistance that they needed. Um, and not only the unemployed, but then you have a whole other demographic of people who lost income, but kept their jobs. Mm -hmm. So unemployment income isn't going to help them at all. The only thing that helps them actually was the stimulus check. Mm -hmm. So that was something that was really important too, that we saw. And we saw that um, when it came to the number of people that fall into that. So one third of the U S as far as, you know, one third of like one of every three people, um, they, have a loss of income, but they don't qualify for unemployment insurance. Okay. So that's like a really large number of people who really needed those stimulus checks. And the stimulus checks really worked well. Like you Mm -hmm. saw that it actually, you know, created um, more spending that actually, you know, prevented jobs from being lost uh, that otherwise would have been lost. And the same thing is true with the unemployment boost that too prevented jobs from being lost due to the extra spending. So we saw like these positive effects from the boost in the stimulus checks from, you know, getting direct money directly to people. Mm-hmm. And you saw what happens when you didn't do that through the existing system with all the people falling through needing food banks assistance and everything else. And I just think that if you look at all of that in, you know, in retrospect now and see, it's just clear that it was really important to get money directly to people. Mm -hmm. And it would have been worse had we not done that. And I just, you know, our existing system is just terrible at at helping people, especially in emergencies. I I hear all that. I also have like a a huge point to make, which is that all of this was the result of the government's response to the pandemic rather than the pandemic itself. Right. So it was the government forcing people to lock down, forcing businesses to close, et cetera, that well, caused all of this. So okay, that's, that's partially I, I, true. Okay. I, I don't, I don't, I, I, okay. If I feel like the government causes a massive problem, I, I don't give them any props for, you know, their half-hearted attempts to alleviate it. Cause I'm like, yeah. you know, even, even here in the UK, people keep saying, you know, the pandemic caused this, you know, this is the result of COVID. I'm like, no, it's not. It's the result of the government's ridiculous response, right? That's what's putting people out of work. You know, it's not the, I'm sure the I'm sure the direct impact of the virus has impacted people to a degree, but the government response has been a much 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 bigger factor in terms of unemployment and and financial loss. Yeah, but I would even say that 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 drives the imperative even more that the government compensates for what it did. You know, I do it's agree. almost I do like... agree with that. I do agree with that. I think if the government yeah. if the government is telling you right. you can't work or your business needs to shut, then as as capitalistic as I am, I'm like, well, if you're, you're, if the government is right. doing that, then in that case, yeah, straight up, like they have to compensate you because that's not your own choice choosing, okay, I don't want to work or I want to close my business. So in, the, in that case, I, I 100% agree that, yeah, they have to do something they're obliged to. Yeah. And it's also, so not only 
you know, is there that imperative to get money to people because the government is preventing them from earning income? Um, but also it just works better to keep the system flowing. Like, you know, you don't want to say, um, you know, prevent people from earning income so that they can't pay rent and then say, okay, no one pays their rent anymore. Mm-hmm. Like, I disagree with that. I think it's important that that if you make it so people can't pay their rent, then you need to make it that they have income so that they can pay their landlord rent so that that can continue to go mm-hmm. um, because there's big problems that happen if you don't do that. And, you know, just like we've been kicking the can down the road the whole time in the U.S. saying, okay, no evictions. And it's like, well, yeah, we don't want people evicted in a pandemic. That's especially if they, again, the government made that happen. But also you've got to make sure that the income that would have gone that, you know, created jobs as well keeps going um, or else you're going to have, you know, this giant train wreck that's going to happen at the end Mm -hmm. of this when all these people who can't pay their rent, who fell behind now suddenly can be evicted. So, you know. That's worrisome. Mm. But the other part about this, too, is that it's it's absolutely true that the government, um, through creating restrictions, um, really reduced and even eliminated people's incomes. Mm-hmm. But it's also true that even prior to the introduction of these restrictions, that businesses were already being hurt from people you know, changing their consumer demand for sure. goods and services. So like, mm-hmm. you know. I don't want to go to a restaurant and eat indoors if I'm, you know, there's no vaccine and I'm worried what's going to happen. And so you saw a lot of people, a lot of businesses hurting immediately, and it was purely a, a consumer response. Mm. So yeah, no, and- I, I, I agree that yeah, there's definitely that to a degree. I just mean the, you know, there's a difference between say, you know losing twenty percent or thirty percent of your customers or income and uh, you know <laughs> shutting shutting it down a hundred percent for mo- for months on end. It's not even like we're just talking. I mean, it did start with the whole, you know, I don't know, was it two weeks to slow the spread or flatten the curve or whatever? And then it just got extended, extended, extended. I know in the U.S., the U.S. is really interesting for me to look at um, because every state has done things very differently. So everyone I talked to, like before we uh, started recording, I was asking you, okay, you know, you're in New Orleans. What's the situation like there? Like I've spoken to people in Georgia and Florida and they're like, yeah, we've been open for a year. Like stuff is cool. Stuff is normal, whatever. No one's wearing masks. We're just living life. And then I talked to someone who's in um, like New York City or Los Angeles, especially a couple months ago. Mm-hmm. And, you know, they're super locked down. I talked to people in Canada. They're really locked down, et cetera. So it's just really fascinating to me how how different the responses have been and then seeing what the wider what the wider impact on that on on everything is really. Yeah, yeah. And yeah, that, that's true. There's a lot of uh, variety out there. I just think it's important that we, you know, recognize that that there's multiple aspects to what caused you know businesses to hurt Mm -hmm. and i would say that you know on the one hand with government being responsible for those restrictions then government owes people income because of that on the other hand even if the government doesn't have anything to do with that because it's consumers pulling back their demand based Mm -hmm. on you know fear of a pandemic Mm -hmm. then we actually still want people to get money so that they can spend it in other ways that would usually be more expensive like for Mm -hmm. example when it comes to restaurants here in New Orleans, you know, we're a big restaurant city and, you know, huge service sector, mm-hmm. uh, service industry city. And so if people start not wanting to go to bars and they don't want to go to restaurants, you know, then those are going to close down and mm-hmm. we don't want that. And, but what we can do is actually enable people to do, you know, delivery services and that they can do um, have it you know, delivered to their homes or they can do takeout. 
And, you know, that kind of stuff, especially the delivery serve costs more, you know, it costs mm-hmm. more to, to do that. And so if you get people money, that's a, you know, a boost, especially preventing their income loss, then they can continue to do that. Those restaurants can continue to function and they can mm-hmm. survive through this. Whereas otherwise, if people had lost incomes, they wouldn't be able to go there. It'd be too expensive and they would shut down. Mm. So in terms of what's happened, so let's talk about what's actually happened because I don't even know all the details. And then I want to talk about your sort of proposed idea for UBI. So in terms of the money that got uh, floated to American citizens Mm -hmm. last year, where did that come from? Because yeah, yeah, was that just the Fed printing trillions of dollars and putting it out to people? That's how I understand it. Um, yeah. But is that okay? Um, yeah, no, it's really interesting even to ask that question and okay. to answer it because, you know, there's, you know, people say, where does the money come from? Uh, you know, there's no such thing as a magic money tree and all this stuff. And it's like, well, guess what? Like, yeah. there is. Like, yeah. there's <laughs> There is, but it has, it has consequences. Yeah, yeah. And so yeah. it's not like there's not any consequences. It, it, you know, there's certainly too much money you can print and distribute. But at a time when like a recession hits, and like mm. you're looking at a massive downturn, then suddenly you need to do that because you don't want to, you know, tax people in order to get them income during a time when there's a downturn. Mm-hmm. And so during these downtimes, it makes sense to increase the money supply for Fred, you know, to turn on the printers and to get people money because you actually are fighting deflation. You know, in a deflationary environment, you can create an inflationary force and that's actually good instead of bad. There's bad inflation, but if you're fighting deflation, then that's good inflation. So yeah, the Fed basically said, all right, let's turn on the printers. Let's get, you know, money to, um, you know, to banks. Let's, uh, you know, prevent the, the, you know, stock market from crashing by doing what we can there. And government was like, look, we don't care about taxing and funding this stuff. We can mm-hmm. just spend it. So then they deficit financed, you know, a bunch of this. And then the Fed can actually handle that. Um, we, you know, the way we do it is we run a deficit and then whatever deficit is, then you create treasury bills and bonds for that deficit, mm-hmm. which you then put out there and then people buy it as an investment and so the Fed even bought a bunch of these treasury bonds and stuff too. Um, and that's the way it goes. So, but essentially we did just turn on the money printers and okay. that was, I think the right thing to do because we're in a pandemic and you can even see that, that, you know, massive inflation wasn't a result. We're still not even, we're still below our still target. Super, even after still super early. Dollars. Is, yeah. is that not super, is it not too early to say that? Is, is an inflation... <laughs> virtually guaranteed in the long run well so it i would say i wouldn't say guaranteed because actually we have thought for years and years and years that we were just about to start seeing inflation and we just didn't like in the uh, the unemployment rate kept falling and falling and we're like oh we're gonna see inflation now big time inflation and it just never really started so I'm already seeing prices going up in the uk by the way so yeah, so there are there are price increases, you know, around the world even in and in the US too, but it, a lot of that is actually due to supply chains and the disruptions that have happened as a result of that. And so, you know, inflation is because of it, it, there's a lot of reasons for inflation, it's complex, but like for the most part, it's when supply can't meet demand. And so mm-hmm. the response is to increase the price. Uh, in order to, you know, better meet that demand by kind of reducing it slightly. Mm -hmm. Um, But, 
you're going to see that increase. Like, let's say supply chains falter. Um, so the, there's a little bit, you know, let's say delay in getting food to people. Um, then you're going to see price increases. And so you don't want to tie that and say the price increase rose because there's more money. Um, it's just that there was more money and the price increase was because of other issues. And so I think that's just important to look at all the different reasons how prices could increase and why they're increasing mm-hmm. and not just because there's more money. Like, But that, you know, is a, that is a gigantic reason, surely, right? I mean, if you print, I don't know how many trillions they printed last year. Um, well, okay. But if you do that, especially with people not providing as much actual work and labor, then it, it seems a, a given basic economics that that's going to cause inflation via increased money supply. Okay. So let's just say that we print uh, $10 trillion more dollars and mm-hmm. like that should really be inflationary, right? Yeah. But then what if we just buried it? Like it didn't do anything. It didn't go anywhere. So the money didn't, existed. Didn't, didn't, you then you didn't put it in circulation? Yeah. Or if it's like it wasn't circulation, um, you know, in circulation as in like, you know, one person got it and then that mm-hmm. one person decided not to spend it, you okay, know? I get you. So just because there's more money doesn't mean people are spending it. And also it depends on what they're spending it on. Mm -hmm. So as another example, let's say you provide, let's say the stimulus checks, you know, let's say, let's say people just spent them entirely on their debts. Okay. So they spent it on medical debts, school debt, insurance, you know, just everything they, the credit cards, everything. Mm -hmm. And so what is the result of that? What happens? Well, there's no inflationary impact at all. In fact, there's a deflationary impact because actually when you pay off a debt, you're actually reducing the money supply. So the only way to actually you know, increase a price for something is if that's being spent on something that a limited number of people want. Hmm. But when you're paying off a debt, you know, there's nothing that people are you know trying to get there's no limit there mm-hmm. and so there's just no impact so again there's depending on how people spend their money is you're going to see different effects on prices in different areas i get that yeah i get that okay um i'm curious to learn about so ubi as a, as a general concept obviously you're a strong advocate for you're saying this is something that should be implemented in the u.s now it's something that's needed now um, and it's something we should, we should do now. It shouldn't just be during the course of this past year, we've kind of had yeah. this thing, but like you, you're, you're all for it. So in the way you see it, what would be, how would that, how would that work? How much would it be? How would it be funded? What are the upsides? What are the downsides, et cetera? I know you've done almost, uh, approaching a decade of work on this. I, I was doing a little bit of research before yeah. this. I, I read a couple articles. I obviously couldn't read all of them. Um, but how, how do you, how do you lay it out? How do you see, um, okay, this is the ideal UBI plan. This is how we implement it. Yeah. So first thing I would do is I also like to, uh, get people to think about basic income in a different way, as far as I'd say, you know, how much does it cost? And of course, how much it costs depends on what the amount is and who it's going towards and everything. Mm-hmm. Um, but that also it isn't asking the question, how much does it cost to not have a basic income? And I think that's a really interesting question too, okay, yeah. because it's like kind of asking how much it costs is almost assuming that not having it is free yeah. and poverty. Every, every, everything free. is trade-offs now. Everything, everything is trade-offs, everything. 
Right. So when it comes to poverty, there's huge trade-offs to poverty. Mm -hmm. So we let it exist by people not having enough income to have pay for their basic needs. And there's chronic insecurity, chronic instability, stress. These results in things like, you know, worsened health outcomes that you see a lot of um, diseases, you know, heart disease, diabetes, cancer. Mm -hmm. These kinds of things can be the result actually of poverty that you're treating downstream. So you could actually prevent these costs by actually treating them, you know, vaccinating against them upstream. Mm -hmm. And you can actually save money looking from that perspective because healthcare, especially in the U S is, you know, we spend a lot of money yeah. on healthcare in the U S mm -hmm. and so to a large degree, we're treating the lack of economic security, the lack of income. And when it comes to education, so like we're putting money into, into public education. And we also know that, you know, if you're a kid, a kid being raised in poverty, if you live in like in a household where your parents are really stressed out from economic insecurity, you're not going to do as well in school. And so, you know, all these kids are, are going through the system and they're not getting out of it what they could otherwise get from it if mm -hmm. they actually didn't have poverty. And so if you look at even like the cost of child poverty has been calculated as over $1 trillion a year okay. in the U.S. And we actually just did something that I'm excited about too, which is um, a monthly child benefit for kids here in the U.S. And we didn't have that before. And we're doing it for a year um, um, during because of the pandemic. We just passed it. People, parents should start getting their checks in July and they'll start getting that for, say, six months, and then look at the rest of it via tax credit um, when they do taxes next year. And so the cost of that um, is actually less than the amount of poverty that you know it'll save. It's, poverty costs a um, trillion dollars. They're going to reduce child poverty in half. So that was, you know, we're saving $500 billion mm -hmm. um, per year. And we're spending about $300 billion per year in order to save that $500 billion. So wow. that's like a really good deal that we're $200 billion ahead on child poverty because of this policy that we're going to enact. Mm -hmm. And UBI is essentially the same way where by reducing poverty, we're going to see a lot of savings throughout because we spend trillions of dollars a year on poverty. Mm -hmm. We're going to see fewer people you know, requiring um, you know, use of their Medicaid and Medicaid, Medicare and Medicaid services, you know, and um, just the healthcare system in general. And also the prison system. So you see that crime reduces because of basic income. And so fewer people would be going into prison and incarceration costs, you know, it could be like $60,000 per year to mm -hmm. pay for someone in prison. And if it costs $12,000 a year to avoid them going into prison, then that's so a good deal. The num the numbers that you're putting out at the moment in terms in terms of the effects of UBI are these are these theoretical or what are these backed by? When you say it would cut child poverty, the cost by five hundred billion, or it would you know reduce uh, I don't know crime by such amount or reduce incarceration by such amount, et cetera. What's sure. that? What's that based on? Are these theoretical or are these numbers that have come from a clear real world example? Well, okay, so the, the child poverty estimate is um, there have been, you know, multiple studies looking at what is the cost, um, you know, calculation come to. And because multiple ones have decided it's over a trillion dollars, I think, you know, 
that makes sense. Mm -hmm. And it's divided into three areas. So you're seeing savings when it comes to child poverty, it's cut into about thirds. So like a third of the trillion comes from um, uh, healthcare costs downstream, a third comes from uh, criminal justice costs downstream, and a third comes from productivity losses downstream. So that means that, you know, let's say you go to prison and then you come out and then suddenly you can't earn as high of income as you could have otherwise, because now you have to check the box that says like you're a felon Mm -hmm. and no one wants to hire you. And because of that, you know, you earn less and because you earn less then you pay less taxes, you know, that kind of thing. Gotcha. So that's like the child study. But when it comes to crime, there's actually, you know, multiple studies that show the decrease. And of course it varies depending on where that happened. Um, the, the Namibia UBI pilot, I think is interesting. That was, um, they provided so, basically you say some, Nam- Namibia. Yeah. Namibia. Okay. Interesting. And, um, they did that. I think that was around 2010, 2011 when they did that UBI experiment. And it was a reduction of crime in, um, over 42%. So that was, you know, a, a pretty nice reduction in, in crime. Mm-hmm. And also, um, you know, the crime, you know, kind of varied. So there's also illegal hunting was one crime that was reduced and that was reduced by 95%. And I think that that shows how, too how long that, did they, how long did they run this for? That was a, that was just a year for the Namibia pilot. And there was like okay. a little bit of an extension. Um, but the, the experiment itself was, was a year. And was that and, on the national, sorry, I'm, I'm just trying to be, be clear. Oh, yeah. Was that, was that on a national level level? Was that every Namibian no. or, okay. It was, um, it was on the village level and okay. it was, um, I believe it is around 1000 participants in that particular experiment. Okay. Um, and I just want to mention too, that when it comes to like the legal hunting thing, I think it's really interesting because it, it shows too, that there's, I think certain crimes that people really don't want to do, mm-hmm. but there's like, like desperation, desperation that drives yeah. you to do it. And as soon sure. as you aren't des- desperate, then you're not mm-hmm. going to do that. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was like, that's the the highest I've seen as far as a crime reduction. But then you also see that um, that uh, property crime goes down temporarily after every distribution in Alaska of the dividend. Okay. And then you also see there was um, the... What, can I, but the Alaska one sure. is so, the Alaska one is so small that how could it have an impact on that? Right. So it, it's interesting too, to, to, you know, to make that analysis. And yeah. part of that analysis shows that when the dividend is higher, you see more of a decrease in crime. Okay. And so, and then because based on the average, then you're showing that, you know, each time that the dividend goes out, that you see this temporary, you know, loss, people are like, oh, well, you know, we don't need to do property crime. <laughs> <laughs> We got our ten thousand dollars. Yeah, I'm just <laughs> trying to because because in Alaska it's it's typically like about somewhere between a thousand and two thousand dollars a year, right? So right. we're talking, you know, hundred, hundred, hundred fifty dollars a month. Um, so I'm I'm just surprised yeah. that that has any sort of tangible impact, really. Oh yeah, and it's really interesting too to see just all the different analyses that you can do from Alaska, and so okay. it's not only crime, but you've also seen. Uh, there's a reduction in obesity that, um, you know, you can measure that because let's say um, a kid is born and depending on when they're born, like, let's say they might have to wait like a full, you know, year additional 
um, in order to get their first dividend versus if they're like born at just the right time where they can get mm-hmm. the dividend, you know, faster. Okay. And so you can see that basically a kid that has a year less of that dividend is actually going to grow up to have more obesity. And so there you have like a savings in Alaska okay. based on reduced obesity just from this dividend. And that's basically- that, And that's, con- that's controlling for everything else? Yeah, yeah. Okay. And I'm, I'm, uh, I'm, 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 t- I'm just take, I'm taking yeah. everything you're saying. I'm just kind of, some of it, some of it, I am kind of like, huh, really? Like that's, no, that surprises me. I'm just, yeah, it's really interesting yeah. to, okay. to look into stuff that you may not expect. Um, okay. Another one is they looked at, of course, at work effect and um, the work effect in, because of the dividend means that when it comes to full-time employees, they're, um, they're going to do a little bit less work per year because of the dividend Mm -hmm. and but because people spend the dividend then that creates these additional jobs which people who are unemployed are able to find and take Mm -hmm. then therefore they earn income and so you know it actually evens out it's actually a neutral impact on full-time employment uh, in alaska and yet it actually is a 17 percent increase on part-time employment interesting and so that i think is really interesting to see that you know provided this dividend it actually helps people or you know inspires them or something to to get part-time work where they wouldn't otherwise do that gotcha so for the US um, as a whole country because obviously this is something you advocate across the board for the whole country mm-hmm. how how would that work um, how much would it be and how would that be funded yeah I I think that it's an effective starting point in the US just to aim for the elimination of poverty as we define it you know, okay. that's where I would like to start. That, how, that how is it? How is it defined question. actually in the U.S.? So right now it's uh, it's right around um, eleven hundred dollars per month would be okay. ending poverty. It's a little bit less than that. So mm-hmm. um, when I talk about, you know, starting a, um, what we should start at, I like twelve hundred dollars right now um, okay. because that would you know go slightly above. And, you know, there's variance across the country. Um, but I just want to make sure that we create this floor underneath everyone that's actually above what we call the poverty line. And so mm-hmm. we can have this debate over, you know, what is poverty, how much actually should people get and whatever. Yeah. And that's a, you know, a good discussion to have, but I think that we already have defined it. And so let's just start there and sure. say that people should have enough that, you know, that they have their basic needs covered, that they can afford just the bare minimum of, you know, eating, sleeping indoors, having clothing, you know, cell phone, like these kind of what their basics now. And that's your starting point. And then you can actually, any, any amount of employment income you earn actually adds to that, Mm -hmm. which is not true at all with the existing system. You know, with the existing system, if you're receiving benefits for being unemployed or having low income, Mm -hmm. and then you earn income, you lose those. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So that, that, the, this... the existing welfare thing has that. That's a whole nother conversation. Um, I think it's probably worth saying, yeah. actually, um, given the way we even started having this conversation, I think it's probably worth saying that I think um, some aspects of UBI certainly strike me as better as the current. Like, if it were to, yeah. re- if if it were like, okay, this is a replacement for the way the <laughs> the, the the way the current sort of whole. I don't know the whole welfare system. I don't. I don't know all the ins and outs of how it is, even in the UK, let alone the US. Um, but it seems very, very messy. And 
complicated disincentivizes people, creates perverse incentives where it's better Mm -hmm. to not work rather than it is to work, so on and so forth. So although, of course, I I have my skepticism around UBI for for a bunch of reasons, which funnily enough, I haven't actually mentioned yet. um, I, I do think, yeah, it does strike me from what I know of it. It does strike me as better than the nonsense that's currently going on. Oh, yeah, yeah. And, um, you know, so these are inherent problems with a means-tested system. You know, like, as long as you only get something, if you meet these certain qualifications, then as long as you, as soon as you don't meet those qualifications, then you're going to be disincentivized to do whatever doesn't meet those qualifications. Mm -hmm. So when you have this floor, then suddenly you remove all of those disincentives. And not only is that true for what we call welfare programs and benefits, but it's also true for these things in the tax code that we don't consider as being welfare because they're like tax credits, subsidies, Mm -hmm. and these kinds of things that, that we consider to be, you know, its own thing. And it's totally different, but it's interesting how like in the U S we have like our housing assistance programs Mm -hmm. and there's actually less that we spend on those welfare programs than we do to actually help people afford um, houses if you're in like the middle class. And then we, we give you a big uh, tax deduction called the, you know, home mortgage interest rate deduction. So we like, we help people afford houses through this housing assistance that we don't call housing assistance, even though the government is spending money on that in order to help people. So, you know, there's a lot of things in the tax code that we could also replace with the UBI. Okay. And I think that we should, because we should simplify the tax code. We should simplify this benefit system as long as we have this floor underneath us and then, you know, build on top of it what makes sense to have on top of it and don't have stuff on top of it that doesn't make sense. Um, You know, as one example, like I think disability makes sense to have on top of the floor, you know, okay. because people with disabilities just need more because they have disabilities. They're not able to work in the way that able people are. Mm-hmm. That's a conditional program that makes sense to have on top of it, I think. Okay. And then when you have like senior pensions, like maybe that should still exist on top of it, but maybe you don't need as much like, you know, because the existing senior pensions are built for a system that doesn't have UBI. So let's say, you know, you're wanting seniors to get, you know, $2,000 um, per month is what they're getting, you know, right now or something. Okay. And then we introduce a UBI. And so you can do that and say, let's say 1200 UBI plus 800 for a senior pension. Mm-hmm. And that would be, you know, the exact same thing as what they're doing. But then you're, you're simplifying the system um, in a way that I think would be effective. I get you. Okay. So where's this money coming from, Scott? Yeah, so I think there's there's a lot of different ways to go about this. And again, part of it should be through existing welfare programs. Part of it should be through existing tax expenditures. That can already cover a lot. So in the U.S., we actually spend $1.5 trillion a year on tax expenditures. And we're spending almost $1 trillion a year on what we call welfare. Okay, sorry. When so, you say tax, when you say tax expenditures, what exactly does that mean? I just so tax expenditures are all um, your tax subsidies, tax deductions. Okay. Um, you know, this these programs, the tax code that we don't really call it. You know what it is. So, like in the U.S., gotcha. one of them is the earned income tax credit, which is a wage subsidy. We say that if you have low income, 
then we're going to directly increase your income because you're employed and we're going to do it through the tax code. Okay. And I just think that makes more sense to, you know, get people money directly and then mm-hmm. not utilize the tax code, you know, in that way and have all these distortions that also have their own, you know, impacts. Mm-hmm. And so that's a good core. And then if you're going to need um, a higher amount of revenue because of whatever the amount is that you're going for, um, like in the U.S., I say $1,200 per month, um, you're not going to need that much more revenue in order to achieve that. Um, but I like actually, first of all, let's just deficit finance what we can deficit finance. And again, I'm not saying just to do this in an unlimited way, but I'm saying that if you actually can grow GDP by making sure that people have more income, then we should do that. And then as soon as you start to see inflationary effects, then you should have taxes to reduce the amount of demand that's overpassing supply. So part of it, I think, should be deficit financed. Part of it should be financed by your reform of the existing system. Mm -hmm. And then whatever taxes that we should do, we should do the taxes because they themselves make sense. So I think carbon tax is something that makes sense as something that, hey, let's incentivize people to reduce their carbon footprint. And because you actually have that UBI, then you're not you know, hurting people in a way that you usually would um, if you were just to introduce a carbon tax. So I think that makes sense. I think things like you know, uh, especially on the local level, like land value taxation makes sense because um, if you have a land value tax, then you're actually incentivizing again um, people to develop undeveloped stuff. Like it doesn't make sense to keep a vacant house that's like crumbling that you're just sitting on waiting for the property to raise in price Mm -hmm. and then you sell it. Like it doesn't, it's not productive to do that. So like, let's actually make it so that there's an incentive for people to develop these properties. And let's also recognize that when it comes to, you know, what creates land value, mm-hmm. it's actually people it's in, and it's the public services around it. So, you, you know, tax funding is actually making values of property rise. So let's make sure that people, you know, get a dividend from this like increase in property value that's happening. And that was actually Milton Friedman's favorite tax, just as okay. an aside. And I think that's, you know, interesting on its own. Um, But also, let's say another thing, too, is when you, any UBI that you fund, the cost is the net cost and not the gross cost. Mm -hmm. And so I don't just mean that the savings from, like, poverty and crime and stuff. I mean, like, if you provide someone um, $1,000 and then you increase their incomes by increase their taxes by $500 in some Mm -hmm. fashion, then they're receiving $500. So you're not actually paying for them to get a thousand. They're getting 500. So what you have to do is you have to subtract out what is being received from the UBI and what the, whatever increase there is in taxes. And that's actually looking more like a negative income tax when you see that. So, you know, there's no difference between Milton Friedman's negative income tax where you have like $12,000 to someone earning zero with a 50% clawback rate 
that's the same thing as having a $12,000 UBI with a 50% flat income tax. And so whatever tax you attach to it is going to change the net cost in a way that you're actually, you know, it's just not as expensive as people think it is. Mm. And I also like, um, how expensive, I like the how way- expensive would it be in, in total? So if you, if you were to do your proposed idea of the 1200 sure. across the entire USA, what's, I'm sure you've done the, you've probably done the maths on this already. How much does that work out to per year? So if you look at the like $12,000 plan mm. and you, you want to make it like, um, as cheap as possible. And, um, at the same time, if you wanted to really simplify it down just to get an idea mm-hmm. of, let's say, resource requirements, if you do a 12,000 UBI with a 40% flat income tax, as in, you know, here in the U.S., the max rate is, um, well, it was 39 and now it's below that. And they're looking to increase it to that. Mm-hmm. But it's like around 40% max. And then you get lower as you earn less. Mm-hmm. But if you were to change that to a flat income tax, then that would be a cost, a net cost of around 600 billion to 900 billion, depending on whatever else that you're doing, you know, with your existing programs and tax managers and stuff. Um, and so, sorry, that, that three, you say 300 to 600 billion, like for across the board, what, what's that number? Sorry. That, that I'm, I'm getting, that's the, there's a lot of numbers the, flying around here. So I'm just keeping it all <laughs> in my head. Yeah. That's the, um, that's the increase in tax um, that would be a um, effective tax increase. And, okay. you know, so when I say effective tax increase too, you know, there's kind of a difference between marginal tax and effective tax. So, mm-hmm. you know, like, let's say you um, have a marginal tax rate because you're very high income yeah. of, you know, 35%, mm-hmm. but you're actually not paying 35%. You're paying more like say 20%. Yeah. And if you, um, if you measure that out, you're basically, we'd see like a 10% increase in taxes um, okay. on that. And that's not even the way I would recommend to do it, but I think it's a way of easily kind of understanding what the tax increase required would be. And okay. so, yeah, it's just like a, basically a 10% income or 10% tax boost on like, say the top uh, 10%. And then you could effectively pay the net difference for that. But again, mm-hmm. I don't prefer to do it that way. Uh, I prefer to do it in other ways that don't focus as much on, you know, income Ta- taxes taxing the rich yeah um okay i mean like i i i don't think uh, on this podcast i think the numbers are going to get too <laughs> the numbers are, are, are too too complicated to figure out here but i'd, I'd like to this is definitely something i want to like look into in 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 more detail because there's a uh, you know it's really what you know i wanted to get you on because you've been looking at this for many years but of, of course one big question with this is so i think there's a couple sort of obvious questions which i know on your i think on your own website you've kind of got an faq where i Mm -hmm. believe some of these are are even covered um i think the number one thing that sort of strikes people immediately is um okay what about inflation right um if everyone's earning this much why wouldn't landlords shop owners etc just Mm -hmm. put up the prices on everything given they know everyone's got an extra 12 grand a year to spend so why don't we tackle that one Sure. So, uh, first of all, a, a competition still exists with uh, UBI, mm-hmm. and so 
it doesn't make any sense as a business owner to raise your prices just because you know someone has more mm-hmm. income, especially mm-hmm. when you know that you have a competitor that's not going to do that. Mm-hmm. And you can even see this play out in Alaska every year where okay. every time the dividend goes out, you see what's called dividend sales across Alaska. So actually businesses lower their prices in order to attract all of this money that people have. You want people to spend your money at your business, not mm. someone else's business. So okay. you try to entice them. And so you can see that pressure even not going the way people think. It's competition is a strong force as long as competition exists. Yeah. And so you want to avoid you know, there being lack of competition, but you want to do that anyways. Mm. You, know, you just want to make sure that you keep competition. Yeah. And also, I would argue that that competition is enhanced by basic income too, because we know also, this is like a very common impact that entrepreneurship actually increases quite a bit. Mm-hmm. And this is over and over and over again. So in the Namibia experiment, um, it went up 301%. So it quadrupled uh, as far as people starting up their own businesses. Uh, in the India pilot, uh, uh, those who received incomes, the villages that got the basic income were three times as likely um, to start up a business mm-hmm. than the control villages. And you just see this over and over where people how, utilize how long, how long was the How long was the India study? Um, the India study was, um, I think that one was uh, two years. Two years, Either, yeah. Yeah. Because are there, are there any studies that are like, because the thing with a lot of these studies is they're, they're really, every, everything I've heard sounds like it's really, it's really short term. Like I, I'm very curious to. I know, like it's it's hard to do long term studies for obvious reasons. They take take a long time by definition, but I'm really curious to see. Like there there are so many things that there are so many government governmental policies or things that just happen in society, et cetera, where you really don't see the result for sometimes a whole generation down the line or multiple decades down the line, whether they are positive or or negative, right? You know, something will happen back in the. 1970s or the 1980s and then in the 2020s 2010s 2020s you're you're really starting to see okay what the impact on of this was right you can mm-hmm. if you even even talking about uh poverty and inequality etc i mean you could look at the impact of certain welfare policies that were brought in place several decades ago in the usa and then seeing okay what's the impact that this has actually had not just on people's finances but on overall society right on marriage rates on the number of children being born outside of wedlock and all the impacts that has on everything else downstream, et cetera. You can trace a lot of that back to certain policies, which I'm sure at the time I'd like to think at least were relatively well-intentioned and maybe on paper sounded good introducing certain welfare welfare policies, but then they've just wreaked havoc on certain communities, especially. So I'm, I'm kind of curious as to what the long-term you know, part of my a lot of my skepticism is about the the long term. Okay, what what does this really look like? Especially, actually, especially with a country the size of the USA, because the US is, if it were a country even like I don't know Sweden or Norway or Estonia or Iceland or something like, it's kind of like okay, that's kind of there's less variables at play here and a much smaller population and, and a lot mm-hmm. less factors. I think with the USA, everything is like every single issue is really complicated, I think, with the USA, just because of the nature of the country, having the 50 states, having such a truly diverse population in terms of ideology, racially, ethnically, like, you know, classes, etc. Whereas some places are 
considerably more homogenous. And so I don't know how that all plays into it. So there's something in my head that's there. There are some like very clear questions I have around it, but then that's also one is just like, okay, long term, what does this look like? Does this look like the sort of more utopian vision that we sort of hope? And, you know, obviously people who advocate it for see, or does this actually lead to something where it has a lot of unwanted effects and impacts on, you know, the economy and people's health and well-being and all these other sort of things? Because I, I think when it comes to governmental policy, maybe this is why I'm more conservative, right, is that I'm always kind of like, man, things can look sort of look good on paper and make sense on paper, but then you actually implement them and you get all these uh, downstream impacts that you don't want. Sure. And I, I guess, you know, one response to that, too, is is to, you know, to think about what does poverty look like on paper? Does that look mm. good or, or bad? Like we know, like, you know, long term impacts of poverty mm. are bad. Agreed. And we know that that these um, but do we know, uh, know programs in the short this, term? This, sorry, sorry to jump and in. So, this might, OK, no. OK, no. Sorry. I don't want to cut you oh. off. You carry on. No, so I just want there. There are long-term things that we can look at, and I absolutely think that you know we should because sure, like it's very true to say that you know something short-term can be different long-term. Mm-hmm. Um, when it comes to like before, uh, we were talking about food stamps, and so you know, um, I'm sorry, we're talking about entrepreneurship mm-hmm. rates, yeah. and so I would say if you look at like long-term kind of thing, we know that just the existence of the SNAP program that itself actually increases entrepreneurship rates. So if you increase entrepreneurship rates in like in a long-term way with food stamps, then obviously mm-hmm. if you give people cash instead of a food voucher, then mm-hmm. you're going to see that impact too, because the outcome is through reduced risk. You know, your risk aversion actually causes a lot of people to not start up a business because they yep, worry what will happen if mm-hmm. I fail. And so if you reduce that risk, then you're going to see more. And, you know, that you can tie those together is like a long-term thing mm-hmm. if you look at alaska too i mean that's been there since 1982 yeah and you know what are the effects well again we already discussed a lot of them um but i suggest even just people look into that for themselves like mm-hmm. what have been the long-term effects how happy are they with it um as far as like you know since it's been since mm-hmm. then another there's there was there's a natural experiment actually in the u.s that i think is really interesting to this discussion too, um, that took place in North Carolina. And this happened in uh, sort of 1995. And uh, like right before this happened, there was, um, it was called the the Great Smoky Mountain Study of Youth, where Mm -hmm. they were taking a group of kids who were living in poverty and they wanted to basically do a long-term longitudinal study of like, what are the impacts of growing up in poverty? Okay. So they had the full intention of, you know, you know, what, how are these kids doing when they're, you know, 20 years old? Mm-hmm. And right after they started that experiment or their study, um, a natural experiment occurred when the local um, Cherokee nation started providing a dividend after opening up a um, casino. And so suddenly some of these kids' parents started receiving an income, you know, without conditions. Mm-hmm. And so you had this natural experiment where you had kids whose parents didn't receive the dividend and you had kids whose parents did. And, you know, what are the results long-term of that? Mm-hmm. And 
very fascinating to see the multiple studies that have looked into this, like what happened to those kids. And you see that these kids, you know, they had better educational outcomes, better health outcomes. They earned more income, um, you know, just turned out like personality uh, differences were positive. A lot of different interesting impacts. And another, like, really, this is the kind of thing that I don't, you know, kind of assume or guess that Mm -hmm. as an impact, but it's that the kids grew up to actually vote more. Like they were more involved as citizens um, through that as like a long-term impact. And so I think like, that's really interesting to consider, like what are the impacts down the road on democracy Mm -hmm. of, you know, ending poverty. And it it could be that it's points toward the direction of people being more active. And just on on that point, just to, just to jump in and just a thought just entered my mind that I wasn't thinking before, but what would, what would prevent if this were implemented, what would prevent politicians from just one upping each other and just running on, Hey, you're offering 1200, I'll offer 1500. Oh, you're 1500. I'm offering 1800. So on and so forth. Yeah. I I would look at like social security as an example of that, Mm -hmm. where you would think, because the, the senior demographic is really valued by politicians mm-hmm. and it's also i would argue because they are so active and they are so active even because they have this economic security and they have the time and ability to actually be more engaged as citizens mm-hmm. and so what happens like first of all if you're a politician you do not like say i'm going to get rid of social security like that's a way to lose an election <laughs> is to is to do that um, but would you want me to get into politics? This is what I because <laughs> it, 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 it's just too popular. It's it's hugely popular, and yeah. people feel that they paid into it. It's theirs, and so they should get it when they reach age. Mm-hmm. And but you also don't see politicians going, "Hey, I want the senior vote, so I'm going to say we double Social Security." Mm-hmm. Like you just don't see that either. Like it's still hard to get these increases in Social Security despite being popular, but you also don't see the negative. And I think that's more important is that you don't want politicians to come in and get rid of it. And -hmm. in fact, another example like that comes from Alaska where the most recent governor just single-handedly decided to reduce the payment. So it it should have been over $2,000. And he was like, no, we're going to reduce this to a thousand dollars. Um, and he, you know, did it because of, of gas prices and they're like, you know, we've got to make this more, yeah. make sure that this fund lasts and grows and stuff. And so he just single-handedly reduced it and people were pissed. And so <laughs> he got, he lost his job because of it. And then, it was, yeah. you know, the people who, who ran to replace him, um, they had different ways of returning that dividend and strengthening the dividend even going forward. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, it's like considered like the third rail of politics there. But what you also didn't see is politicians, you know, continually upping it and going, let's get even more and more and more. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And here's another another big question. I think like, you know, obviously the inflation question is a big one. Another big one is why not just cut taxes? Yeah, so taxes is, first of all, I, I would... I, I want people to understand UBI as essentially a refundable tax credit. You know, it is a tax cut. Mm-hmm. It's just in the form of cash instead of a reduction in like, say, your payroll taxes. So it's, you know, when you get a tax rebate, it's still your taxes that you're getting refunded. It's, it, you know, it's it's a tax cut, but it's just done differently. And it's there's value in doing that differently because, again, 
if you provide everyone this, you know, tax rebate, then that's when you don't need to do the stuff that you're doing right now, which has these perverse incentives when it comes to, you know, various welfare programs. Mm -hmm. So like, if you just make sure that you do a, a universal like tax rebate, then you can replace those programs. Um, and you don't have to do like separate things with the existing, you know, way of going about things. And I'd also argue. It sounds that, more complicated. Yeah, sorry, I don't mean to interrupt you. I'm just saying it's, it sure. sounds more complicated to me than oh, it's, reducing it's, taxes. If you just make sure that everyone has you know this tax rebate that's still $1,000 per month mm -hmm. or whatever, then you don't have to do all these other things, like, especially if you're reducing a bunch of the tax credits and expenditures that we talked about you know, earlier. Like, you don't have to um, you know, qualify for like, a, what is your income base? Or what did you earn? And then let's figure out, you know, let's have like a bunch of IRS administrators and stuff looking at your income in order to figure out what this is. And, um, okay, do you get the home mortgage interest deduction? No. Do you get the earned income tax credit? No. Like all that measurements and stuff goes away if you just make sure that people have this universal like national tax rebate first. Mm -hmm. And you'll have that simplification. And I would say that there's kind of a difference too, as in um, dividend versus stock selling. And so I would point to, again, a UBI as being a dividend as saying, okay, there's all this, um, you know, this US, the corporation, you know, kind of thing. And we, our, product, our productivity is so great, let's distribute this dividend. And if you own stock, you get a dividend because of it. If you do a tax cut, then you're reducing the amount of the actual, I would say, argue like the principal. Um, so you're saying that like, if you sell $1,000 of stock per month, then you would get $1,000 of income per month. But I would not argue is it being the exact same thing as a dividend because you're actually reducing the amount of ownership that you have. Like if you continually reduce the amount of tax revenue that there is, then you're going to reduce all these other things as well. And all those other things are helping create that productivity that you're getting the dividend from. So that's why I'd say, look, let's go ahead and reduce tax burdens, but the rebate is just the more efficient and um, you know more effective way of, of doing it. Interesting. Interesting. I don't, I don't know if I, I don't know if I totally follow that. Um, well, okay. and I guess I, I, Okay. Here's another yeah, example. Go ahead. Go ahead. No, it's just here's another example um, that's interesting too because we just saw it like again okay. through the pandemic, and we saw this argument where like Trump was saying, well, "Let's you know do a payroll tax cut, you know, mm -hmm. and help people through this time." Mm -hmm. And so, okay, if you cut people's payroll taxes, then you are going to increase their checks, and that's good. Mm -hmm. But you're only helping those people who are still receiving income because mm -hmm. they're employed. Mm -hmm. And the loss of that, you know, is all these other people who are unemployed and they're getting nothing. Mm -hmm. And because they're getting nothing, then you're impacting the people who are, you know, still paying payroll you're taxes. You're concerned about the, the disparity. Well, it, and also just economically speaking, you're okay. not helping those people keep their jobs like you would be. Um, if you're only cutting payroll taxes, you know, because mm -hmm. again, all those other people who aren't employed are going to impact those who are employed because they're unable to spend like they were. So then those jobs are shed 
And now, sure, there's even fewer people paying payroll taxes because mm -hmm. there's even more people who are unemployed. And you're, it's helping feed into the cycle of like continually reducing the amount of spending in the economy. Mm -hmm. And so we know just from last year, it would, it's more effective to do a stimulus check instead of a payroll tax cut because, first of all, you reach everybody. And also, it's more economically stimulative to get it all at once as well instead of over time, like a payroll tax cut would have done. Mm. Okay, man, this is a, I'm, I'm actually kind of a little bit wary about, about the time. Cause I think this is really like a multi-hour discussion, <laughs> but from your own perspective, what, what are the foreseeable or genuine real world downsides to UBI? Right. I've obviously got my own concerns as do a lot of other people, but as someone who advocates for it yeah. and who's really, really looked into it in detail, what do you think are the downsides? Well, so first of all, I, I would describe my look at the downsides as differently. Like, I don't agree that certain downsides would be downsides, okay. um, even if they were to exist. And so, like, work obviously is the most obvious thing to start and point to, because mm -hmm. most people, like, the prime concern is people will work less. Yeah. If people work less, then suddenly all these other things happen that are bad and people worry, what are the results of that? Mm -hmm. And so, first of all, I don't think that a free labor market is a free labor market if you're not really voluntarily choosing to sell your labor. I think that if you feel that you have to accept any job, in order to survive, mm -hmm. then that's just not a free market. And that in itself has its own impacts, meaning that if you can't refuse a job, then jobs can pay less. And then that has issues. If you can't refuse a job, then you're going to accept a job that may, may not be your best skills match for mm -hmm. the job. Um, so there's like these other impacts that happen from that, that I don't like that I would argue, you know, aren't good. So I would say that, you know, I want people to be able to refuse to work um, because I think that that gives them the power and ability to choose what work is best for them at the wage that should be paid and with the benefits that they feel is necessary under the conditions that they feel, under the hours that they feel. Um, okay. I think this is, is a real, sufficient. I think this is a big philosophical difference here, but yeah, <laughs> I'd, I understand the perspective. I don't agree yeah. with it, but I, I get it. So if you, if you have that and, and then people can refuse to work, then also it's not that people are going to choose to, to refuse to work, you know? Mm -hmm. And that's what you see in the experiments. That's what I think it's, you know, there's value in look at these experiments. Um, like if you look at, you know, the most recent thing, um, just so people know, you know, it was the Stockton experiment and that was 125 people receiving $500 a month for two years. And they found from um, the result of this is that unemployment um, was reduced among the recipients. And actually the recipients were twice as likely to be full-time employed than those who didn't receive it. And as Unem one unemployment, way, unemployment was reduced. How so? What was the mechanism for that? Unemployment was reduced as in um, the mechanism theoretically, you know, is that, that essentially it's like boots, 
and with bootstraps. It's like you can't pull yourself up by bootstraps if you don't have any boots. Mm -hmm. And so if you have $500 a month, you know, that's not enough to like do nothing, but it is enough to actually help you find things to do. And as an example, like someone, let's say they had, and this was a real example, like they had a job that didn't pay very much. It was, you know, a part-time job. They didn't really like mm -hmm. um, low pay. And, but they couldn't afford to actually find a better job as long as they had that job. You know, it's kind of like you're locked into it. Um, if you take the day off to go like interview for a better job, mm -hmm. then you're going to lose income because you're not working that job for that day. So and that like could buff, mean that you're not going to be able. Yeah. yeah. So you have that buffer that enables you to take that risk and find that better job. And they found that they did find that mm -hmm. better job. So that's like an example of, of actually increasing employment, but I'm, I'm not even arguing that that's good either. Um, mm -hmm. If, I, if you look at the experiments in the 70s in the U.S. and Canada, too, um, they found that employment decreased slightly. And how did that work? Well, so that was measured as a per year basis. So unemployment was reduced over the year. Um, but it's not that people actually, like, chose to work less. It's that between jobs, they spent a longer time finding that next job. And so I think that's important for that skills matching. Like mm. you don't want someone just to take the immediate job that may not utilize their skill set at all. It's just yeah. they need a paycheck. So we want a, skill, a, a skilled labor force that's actually matched to what they can and want to be doing so that you have you know, higher productivity um, than you otherwise would. So it's also important to look at, you know, how did the work decrease? What were the results of that? Another one is that there you had a decrease in employment in students. Okay. So you had you had students who are like they dropped out of high school and then they they needed they dropped out of high school because they needed to help earn income for the family. And then that family started receiving the basic income. And so then they're like, well, okay, I don't need to continue working in this job. I can go back to high school and actually finish. Mm -hmm. And so that's what you saw in that experiment in, in Canada. Okay. And you also saw um, mothers of newborns. So mothers of newborns, they didn't go right back to work like they would have. They were actually able to stay home um, with their child for a longer period of time than they otherwise would have because they would have had basically, you know, been forced back into work. Mm -hmm. And so they could actually do, you know, unpaid care work, which is again, valuable. And, you know, it's, it's hard to say that, you know, a mom um, staying home to raise their kid, um, especially a newborn mm -hmm. is like not important work, but like yeah, extremely important. You, if I'm she got a home. job, you know, at like, no, no, I'm, I'm, I'm with you, you on that one. I'm, I'm with you on that one. I mean, to be, I mean, the, the thing I think with a lot of these ideas is it's, how would I put it? I think a, lo a lot of things, and this goes with a lot of political differences and political ideas is, you know, sometimes there's a, sometimes there's a disagreement on what people want, but oftentimes I think people want the same things, whether you're talking to someone who's progressive, liberal, conservative, libertarian, whatever label someone wants to use, etc., or even just different ideas. I think oftentimes people kind of want the same thing, but the question is, okay, what's the what's the mechanism to get there? 
um, what potential rights are being, are any rights being sort of trampled in the meantime? You know, what are the trade-offs? What are the downsides? What are the known unknowns? What are the unknown unknowns? All those, all those sorts of things, right? I think, I think pretty much everyone agrees that, yeah, you know, if a woman's had a, had a child, then she, you know, she shouldn't be destitute. I don't see anyone who's like pro-poverty out there. Um, I think everyone wants these, most people want these things to be remedied. I think the question is about who, what should be done and also, and also who does it. I think a big question with everything we've been talking about is, I think a lot of it also comes down to one's, one's faith in the government, right? I'm someone who's very, very, very government skeptical, and Mm -hmm. I want them to generally be doing as 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 little as possible so there are some aspects of you know our ubi and some of the things you've said that that are sort of appeal to that side of me mm-hmm. and then there are other things that just on on a greater perspective a, a big one in fact would be um you know the the you part of it right is would it in the long term would this truly remain unconditional would i want to trust the government with that could they start you know saying oh actually this person misbehaved or this person has bad ideas so actually we're going to remove this person's um, you know, basic income, et cetera, right? I think a, a big a big concern to me, and I think to a lot of other people, a bit like a lot of what's happened in the past year is it feels like another step towards what some people would consider a dystopia, right? More centralized government with more power and more control and people kind of breeding that, breeding that reliance. We already know with the welfare state, it breeds a reliance on the on the government and people kind of getting stuck in certain ruts and I do have a general sort of wider concern that this idea in the long term could have those sort of effects on a on a much much bigger level. Not to mention just the I'm very much um you know I feel work it's the value of work and labor is goes beyond just income, right? It goes beyond income. Sure. Even aspects of poverty, you know, so even if you gave everyone $1000 a month would that even solve poverty, right? Because a lot of poverty is about mindset, right? It's about people's behaviors. It's about people's beliefs, et cetera. You give one person $1,000 and I trust that they will spend it very well. You give another person $1,000 and, you know, that person that person may even end up worse off depending on their situation, right? They could end up worse off depending on how they spend it. So I think all of those are additional questions and concerns that myself and a lot of other people who are skeptical around ideas like UBI have um i think some people Mm -hmm. try to make it as simple as like oh you know you want people to be poor or you want this like no 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 it's that's nonsense right it's just like okay what are all the what are all the factors here what are the pros here the cons how is this funded how much is it costing is it stepping on anybody's toes what are the long-term effects all that kind of stuff i just think there's a whole lot of questions there yeah yeah so i guess um like my first uh, my first response is is like we can agree that 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 people do often say would agree on the same thing, and let's say you know let's say they'll say that child poverty is bad, sure, and say oh it's a universal child poverty is bad, yeah. And what was interesting is when you look at like the details of of how people want to resolve that, and like as as a clear example, I feel that's recent is that. Um, Mitt Romney um, proposed a universal child allowance here in the U.S. and and I call it a basic income for kids. Okay. Um, and that was his plan was fully universal, and it's it's you know you get it whether your parent is you know working or not. They get it whether their their parent is you know earning 
poverty wage or um, it was running $100,000. It's universal. And it actually, the way that he designed it was actually revenue neutral as well. So he replaced uh, the child tax credit, um, uh, TANF, which is a temporary assistance to needy families, which is like our family cash welfare program here in the U.S. Um, And it actually uh, would replace, say, um, a tax credit that is mostly goes towards um, the wealthier and also actually more towards say bluer states mm-hmm. um, because it goes you know more towards high incomes as the tax credit and so his proposal was revenue neutral fully universal and would cut poverty child poverty by a third okay and so you would think that everyone should be on board with that and especially you would think Marco Rubio should be on board with that because Marco Rubio has been pushing for an expansion of the child tax credit. Um, you know, for years now, it's like one of his things he's known for is he's all about reducing child poverty. And it's funny because Mitt Romney makes his proposal and, and Rubio is like, well, not like that, (laughs) because if you do it that way, then you can actually have, um, you can actually have those moms actually stay home and raise their kids, uh, instead of working. Mm -hmm. And so like, he's looking at it as in, let's not enable, um, parents especially you know moms to mm. be child um caregivers in the home yeah. he wants those moms to go into you know the, the labor market yeah, yeah, yeah. and so it, it, he can say that he wants to reduce poverty but like it's an asterisk and it says that you know i want to use poverty to punish parents who don't work like the only recipients of this should be parents who are working in a way I consider to be valuable. Mm -hmm. So that's like one of those things where there's agreement superficially, but it's just not real if you're not willing to do, you know, what you're saying you're for. Yeah. I think it always, it always comes down to, you know, this is, this is literally what politics is, right? People have such different, worldviews people have different value stacks people have different uh morality stacks etc so you know one person over here thinks i'll just just tax those rich people right and then just you know put the money over there right and they see no ethical to them that's the ethical or moral thing to do whereas to someone like me i'm like oh hell no like wait (laughs) right like no like even even as a child even as a child right i've always been like no like that's not fair like even in terms of income tax i remember learning about progressive income tax when i was like I don't know, 11 or 12 years old. And I was like, wait, that's not fair. Everyone should pay the same percentage, right? Mm. Um, whereas someone else would be like, oh, no, absolutely not. It needs to be more progressive. In fact, like, you know, someone... Are, and so, I don't know. It's a, it's a complicated thing. And I think that that's literally what politics is. You have all these people across the board. People have different ideas, et cetera. I'm very much in the camp of like, you know, don't take people's stuff. Don't hurt them. And take don't take people's stuff goes to that includes minimizing taxation for me as well. So yeah. you know, people have very different views on these things. Uh, I, I, and to your point earlier too, when you were um, uh, you know talking about concerns about you know what happens to these programs, mm. um, I think it's really important to realize the difference between a universal program and like a means tested targeted program, just from a political outcome perspective. Okay, as in you know Social Security again, very popular is popular because it's universal and everyone expects to get it when they turn, you know, 65 or whatever age they decide to start getting it at. Mm. Um, A very strong program. As soon as you divide people and you say, okay, this program is only for those people. 
then suddenly like those is stigmatized. And mm -hmm. so you don't want to be those people. They don't want to be those people. Mm -hmm. And it's really easy to reduce that program. And mm -hmm. like an example of that is again, TANF that Mitt Romney looks to replace the universal child allowance. And TANF actually, when it first started under Bill Clinton, he's the one who did the tax reform, uh, the welfare reform. Um, it was around three quarters of the assistance went directly to cash. And then nowadays it's um, just over 20%. And so now there's so much more in this program that, you know, they're finding ways to not get it to people with low income. You know, there's, let's say it's subsidizing um, the children of like the, even the upper middle class mm -hmm. that they're, you know, it's, it's going towards programs that aren't actually helping people. It's, it's, it's saying that um, let's have a class that teaches um, young women to not get pregnant out of wedlock. Mm -hmm. um, like that's the way that they're utilizing these resources and that to your, what you said earlier, as far as the government being terrible about that kind of thing, that's an example of the government being really terrible at helping people because they're like, it's a block grant. States can do what they want to. There's mm -hmm. all sorts of variety of what they choose to do. And here in Louisiana, if you look at a hundred families in poverty, then only four of those families are actually receiving TANF, even though all 100 qualify. Okay. So it's again, huge exclusionary impacts of this means tested conditional program. Mm. And then again, you have these problems where if you're receiving it, then you're disincentivized from whatever job might come your way, yeah. depending on the details of that job. Mm. So strength comes from a universal program and weakness comes from these targeted programs. And so if we want to avoid the government, like doing terrible things with the program over time, mm -hmm. then the more universal it is, then the less likely it is to happen and the stronger that it'll be. And we just see that over and over again. Gotcha. Do you think that, um, I mean, one, one big question I have, and we're, we're going to, going to, going to round this off soon. I know we've, uh, <laughs> gone way over the initial plan time, but it's been a great conversation. Yeah is um this this isn't a reason explicitly that it should not sort of be done but if it's if the upsides are so clear with the sort of minimal downsides then why do you think that more countries haven't just done this already do you think that it's just a matter of time or why why do you think they haven't already done it yeah it's a good question it's like a i think it's a moral question I think that there is there is so much fear that people provided something for nothing um, would do nothing that they don't want to do it. So there's you know there's always some you know condition attached that um, because it's just they don't want to do that, mm -hmm. and it, they've gotten around that in Alaska um, because again people feel that it's theirs, you know, it's, it's their share of Alaska, you know, oil wealth as being a resident of Alaska. Mm -hmm. And so because of that, that universal strength that they feel that they aren't getting a basic income, that they aren't getting something for nothing, that they yeah. are getting something for something. And so I think that when it comes to actually achieving this, it's not going to happen out of a belief that it's something for nothing. Like it has to be seen as something for something. Yeah. And that's why I think that 
you know, seeing it as, you know, a technological inheritance, seeing it as, you know, Thomas Paine described it as like a natural inheritance. And I, I just as an aside, because I think it's a really like good argument, just philosophically mm -hmm. speaking. Um, so Thomas Paine was for essentially something very close to this. It wasn't a UBI. He was he was looking for um, that everyone when they turned 21 would receive this, you know, essentially use universal capital grant. Okay. And that would be something that they could utilize to start their lives that, and, but it was fully universal and it was universal because it was seen as a right that was compensating people for the loss of what the inheritance that would have been theirs as in the earth itself. You know, he said that no man created the earth. Mm. All you have, like when you, when you, you say, you know, mine gold or mine metals and minerals and stuff from the earth, that that you're adding value to it like if you turn a tree into a chair then you've essentially could have added great value to it someone wants the chair instead of a tree and so that person should be rewarded for adding that value to that resource mm -hmm. but they didn't create the actual tree and then by utilizing it themselves other people aren't able to use it it's gone so he's Renewal. saying but yeah, hmm? carry on. Oh, yeah. I was saying but, I was saying it's yeah. renewable, but yeah, carry on. I'm just saying from a um, uh, yeah, just yeah. an example Theor of perspective. Yeah, I, I know yeah. what you mean. I know what you mean. So, um, so yeah. So his argument was that okay, there was there was the natural like Earth um, before we created civilization, and let's say you could, you know, you could call some land yours. You could, um, you know, gather nuts and berries, and and you could hunt. Um, you know, it was all free. It required work, but it was free. And we changed that. And the result of that was civilization. And, you know, it was great. Like civilization has many benefits. Mm -hmm. um, but civilization also means that some people are worse off than they would be if civilization hadn't been created. So he believed Ooh, in compensation. Is that, is that, is that, is that accurate? That statement doesn't, that doesn't sound right to me. Oh, yeah. Like you can even see that right now where let's okay. say, um, you know, you can't just uh, legally like claim some land as yours and start like farming and stuff and, and okay. living off okay. the land. I, I, OK, I get what you mean. I get what you mean. Like you have to pay somebody. Yeah, and yeah. But you didn't have to originally do that. Yeah. We, okay, we created that. Yeah. So he saw this as compensation for the loss of the commons and that you should get that by turning to, you know, at turning 21, it's fully universal. And that was your right as mm -hmm. your natural inheritance. Yeah. So I think that when it comes to seeing things like that, like technological inheritance, natural inheritance, mm -hmm. um, dividend from productivity, uh, as, as automation increases, you know, we should see that, um, that, that automation should be benefiting all of us instead of just some mm -hmm. that, you know, the data that's even helping the technology do more, the data is being generated by us. It's our data. Mm -hmm. um, so we should see it as like a data dividend, like even money itself. Like this is something that we create and it should benefit everybody. And what's the best possible way to create new money. I would argue in equal amount within everybody's hands, instead of like at a bank, to distribute who to who they feel that they, they want to distribute it to. Mm. Like there's lots of ways to look at UBI. It's something that should be seen as a right, should be seen as a dividend, should be seen as deserved. Um, and if it's seen as welfare, you know, that's not going to work uh, yeah. because people just 
just like that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it's it's a really interesting idea, man. It's uh, it's been a really fascinating conversation. Um, you know, I think we've got a lot of points of agreement, some points of disagreement. You know, but that's always that's always going to be the case. But I think you've done a fantastic job of explaining the the concept and going into it in going into it in more detail, economically, practically, philosophically than what most people would have heard so i think that's uh, i think it's a really valuable conversation i think people are really going to appreciate this so if people want to yeah, learn more yeah 100 percent, man if if, if people want to follow you or learn more about what you're doing what's the best place for them to check out yeah uh, follow me on twitter at scott santons and i always uh, i encourage people to check out my pin thread which is just you know like a giant ongoing thread of of evidence as it comes out because um, i think that going through that really helps paint a clearer picture of all the different impacts and reasons why you know it might make sense and um you can go to my blog too you mentioned earlier the faq and that's uh, you can find it at scottsantons.com to really get into this at a deeper level looking you know reading various articles for various kind of um angles mm, awesome scott santons thank you very much for coming on the show man really appreciate it Thanks, Zuby. Thanks for having me. I'm glad to be able to have this discussion. No doubt, man. Take care. I am the man, sick with the slang, sick and I'm destined for fame. Do for the fam, not for the grand. Stunt me a destined for pain. I do not front, I do not scam. Put some respect on my name. Sick like a pain, click and I bang. Y'all gonna remember the name. Y'all gonna remember the name. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Coriant. Coriant provides wealth management services centered around you. They focus on exceeding your expectations and simplifying your life. Coriant has been helping high achievers just like you enjoy their lives more fully, preserve their wealth, and provide for the people, causes, and communities they care about. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Coriant has deeply experienced teams in 23 strategic locations. Coriant has extensive knowledge spanning the full spectrum of plan investing, lending, and money management disciplines. Leverage Coriant's exclusive network of experts to craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex they may be. Real wealth requires real solutions. For more information, connect with a wealth advisor today at Coriant.com. That's C-O-R-I-E-N-T.com. Coriant.com. Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you, with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.